confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. This episode of Off Air with Jane and Fee is brought to you by British Heart Foundation. British Heart Foundation have estimated that up to 7.6 million people are living with heart and circulatory diseases in the UK. And there is something we can all do to help fund life-saving research. And don't worry, Fee, we don't all need to run marathons to fundraise today. Over 50% of their research is funded by gifts in wills. Now, these are really vital in supporting life-saving research. It's such a remarkably positive thing we can all do and definitely something to consider if you are writing your will or thinking of updating it. With a simple act, you can support future scientific breakthroughs that could help save and improve millions of lives. British Heart Foundation offers a free will guide and free will writing services too, helping to make the process as easy as possible. To download your free will guide today and help British Heart Foundation fund life-saving research, search BHF Wills. So we've just uh, been on air uh, on tenterhooks like cats on a hot tin roof watching the Privileges Committee chaired by Harriet Harman put Boris Johnson through his paces about whether or not he recklessly misled Parliament to do with parties and all sorts. How are you feeling now, Jane? I'm a little bit boss-eyed, actually. Well, um, Mr Johnson is sticking very firmly to his stance that he did nothing wrong. And uh, can we just make a few um, idiotic observations? Yes. Everyone's had a haircut. Well, not only has Boris Johnson had a haircut, he's had a hair smoothed down, hasn't he? So not one single bit of that tufty kind of cockatoo thing uh, was poking up at all uh, during the... Well, it's three hours now, isn't he, that yeah. he's been in there. So someone's applied a product. I think they definitely have. I, I, by the way, I'm not... Everyone has had their hair done. And they, and they, I would do the same. If I were on that committee and I knew that I was going to be on television screens, the length and breadth of the land, even I would have straggled a brush through my mop. I really would. Uh, so everyone's trying their best, looking smart. Let's be honest, some of the MPs are rather better at asking questions than others. And we've, we're told they've all had help and they've all been instructed on what to say and when to say it. So it's all quite carefully choreographed. Um, but what it also tells you is that, you know, Britain isn't as diverse as we might like. So Harriet Harman, the chair, was at St Paul's Girls' School. It's your phone going off, yeah, and she's she's got a, a she's very you know very brisk and very authoritative. And and Boris Johnson, of course, went to Eton. And sometimes you think it would be good, wouldn't it, if we just had a little bit more going on in terms of diversity at the top of our 
political tree. But what do you think that would have brought to proceedings today? Well, just uh, you just can't help. Every time Harriet tells him off, I'm just thinking St Paul's Girls School one, eaten nil. Okay, <laughs> I just I can't. I mean, it's just things of Britain has changed, but sometimes you think actually not that much. Mm. I had a sensation, a parenting sensation, watching the proceedings today, and obviously, uh, you know, we don't want to prejudice any outcome, so this is simply an observation on what's happened. Uh, but there's, um, I know they have to go into intrinsic detail, don't they, about who saw what, said what, yeah. which trestle table came down which corridor mm. and how many times, you know, somebody stood next to somebody else under two metres and all that kind of stuff. And it is very important. But also there's just something... There, there would have been something brave and bold in, I think, uh, a better admission of having got some things wrong. You know, when you're telling your children off and you know in there is a different answer to the one that you're continually, continually getting. And I just felt the same level of frustration. You weren't expecting contrition from the right honourable... What's his real name? It's Alexander, isn't it? Perfeffel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, really, were you? <laughs> no, because <laughs> I don't think he does that. It did take and me Boris, back. And Bor- actually, thinking of Boris Johnson, Donald Trump was supposed to be arrested today. Well, what time is it? Quarter past five in the UK, not a, not a whisper. We wrote something about this in our little book, didn't we, uh, about the power of the alpha male. And irrespective of what happens to Boris Johnson today, there is something about the crumbling of power of the alpha male going on across the world at the moment. Because as you've mentioned, uh, Donald Trump uh, is due to be arrested. And that's because he says it's going to happen. It's not us saying that. Uh, Andrew Tate has had his uh, remand uh, custodial uh, period of time extended, hasn't he? Again, and, yep. Right. And, uh, and Boris Johnson has been facing all of this today. And I think, didn't we just say in a book, so you wrote a very funny chapter uh, about uh, wanting to have, what was it, the booming confidence of the alpha male. Yeah, so, something like that. <laughs> to take yeah. them into situations. And I think I wrote a little bit just in praise of the beta male. Uh, which is just a completely different type of man, actually, uh, who I think does display characteristics that just haven't been celebrated enough in men. But I would so welcome seeing more of that. Come on, beta men. Yes, oh, I but love But by the their beta very male. nature, they're, they're not out exactly. there shouting, are they? They're not, they're not the ones that are, you know, that are pushing themselves forward to the front uh, and who need that kind of constant validation of triumph along the way. So welcome all beta males to this podcast. I don't believe that the alpha male is listening to this. Uh, you're very welcome if you're beta. And if you're living with a beta, uh, then congratulations, you've won the lottery of life. Right. Um, we should say we did get one or two emails during the course of the programme saying, we don't want this. We want, <laughs> we want, we want your normal goofiness. And um, well, actually, we do, we do also cover the news, don't we? In the programme. We do. Yes. I, I felt in that sentence it had capital letters. We cover the news. We certainly do. Uh, but this afternoon there was just wall-to-wall coverage of Mr Johnston's... Mr Johnston? <laughs> Mr Johnson, I'm being very polite, evidence to the Privileges Committee. Rolling news, they call it. It'll never catch on. <laughs> right, do you want to do some emails? Well, I do. Uh, this one uh, comes from Susan and it's going to take us in a completely different direction and thank you for that. Uh, Susan says, I'm a 52-year-old mother of a 17-year-old daughter. She was born here in Germany, where I've lived for over 20 years. On her return home from school yesterday, I was surprised to actually see my daughter in 
the flesh as opposed to simply hearing her arrival, followed by a mumbled hello and the sound of her trudging up to her room. She had news. She was buzzing. And as it turned out, rightly so. One of her classmates has art. One of her classmates had asked to be excused from a lesson to go to the toilet. The male teacher pointed out that this particular student had only just returned from a toilet break not 10 minutes previously and wanted to know what possible what possible reason there could be for her needing to return. And the student, without missing a beat, stated quite matter-of-factly, my tampon is in the wrong position and I need to go and fix it. And with that, she left the room. The response from her classmates, none. A couple of raised heads, wry smiles, nods of approval, but otherwise they simply got on with their work. Retelling this story to my female friends prompted conversations about how this simply would not have happened in our day. We chatted about the secrecy and or shame attached to anything period related back then and the inevitable and numerous stories of embarrassing period related situations and susan says my daughter's story made my day in a world in which it can be increasingly difficult to pick out positivity the attitude of this upcoming generation gives me real hope for the future well susan you and me both that is a lovely story uh, I'm delighted at that response from her classmates. And it just is about time, isn't it, that that completely normal monthly thing is allowed the kind of uh, rational, non-drama, just matter-of-course discussion and openness. So hurrah for that yes. and thank you for sharing. Good, good, good. All good. Um, there was a story in the Sunday Times last weekend that tampon sales are on the slide. Yes, because the younger generation don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. They do free bleeding in the lighter days and uh, moon cups if they can. So um, it is interesting that, isn't it? I mean, also I should say that tampons are not cheap. Uh, and I think that might be a, that's got bound to be a factor, isn't it? I know period poverty is a very genuine thing. Although again, that was something else nobody ever talked about until five or six years ago. Um, but it'll be interesting to see whether the San Pro industry, which makes an absolute fortune and largely goes unchallenged, um, actually carries on or continu continues to flourish. I don't know. Well, quite a few of the companies have already diversified because they've seen the way that the market's going. What, to uh, incontinence pants, pants and, and things like that? Oh, I see, yeah. Said. I mean, I guess, it, well, let's be honest, as we all live longer and age, uh, incontinence pads will remain a thing. Yeah. Uh, they, I used to get invited every year to the uh, reception at the House of Commons of the Hygienic Absorbent Something Organisation. I couldn't go, unfortunately. Just, you would have thought that they would have got a clever acronym that so could oh, be they? PADS. <laughs> <laughs> Personal absorbent. Oh, yeah, come on, you're onto something. Personal absorbent. Oh, well, I was going to say deodorise, but we don't do that anymore. No. We don't need to. Why should we? Uh, societies, we just need to find the right Come D. on, somebody, somebody will be able to do and it. And then we've got pads. Yeah. Uh, we do have a guest, you'll be relieved to hear. It's actor, writer and presenter Tony Robinson. More of him in a moment or two. But a lovely invitation from Alice, who is, um, she's going to be conducting uh, The Marriage of Figaro at the Royal Academy of Music this Friday at six o'clock. And she's amazing. invited us, hasn't she? She has, and I'm hosting my weekly drinks, so I can't come. But um, Alice is a little bit hacked off with us, and I kind of don't blame her, actually. She I'll, but I'll come. <laughs> yeah. Do you want Fee to come? You can email in again. Um, but, um, she says, do either of you like opera? Now, officially, I don't like opera, but I was blown away when I went to Glyndebourne over the summer. I thought it was just incredible. Oh. So I can't say I don't like it. 
I can only say I don't know enough about it. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd happily go to that, actually, because I really like the point that she made uh, about people, uh, you know, needing to break down that stuffiness that still surrounds classical music in particular. And we were talking about the joy of being in an orchestra, weren't we? Because I was trying to persuade you to take up an instrument. Because actually being in the middle of an orchestra when you're playing uh, is just a, a really amazing thing. And she had had this cracking idea for you and I to go and sit in the middle of an orchestra and do a kind of commentary without even you know, performing or playing an instrument. So I think maybe we should explore that a bit more. It well, would be quite good it fun. Would, it would be good fun. I think you'd learn something from it, Joy. Um, you both make jokes about going to the theatre, says Alice, implying that it's all high art and snobbish. Well, I love some total trash on television, Death in Paradise, a particular favourite. But as somebody working in the performing industry, right now we're all terrified for our livelihoods and especially for future generations. We're being decimated by the current government and your former employees are, employers are doing nothing to help with that. Uh, the BBC Singers orchestras being disbanded etc uh, very few of us earn more than teachers most of us are freelance with all the security that entails alice i absolutely take your point and um yes i do i do take the piss out of going to the theater whilst going to the theater really quite regularly and um very rarely not enjoying myself if i'm honest so let's knock that on the head mm. and we'll come and sit in your orchestra and chat our way through do you want to just quickly apologize to people you've offended who play the lute Yes, I'm really sorry. Yes, because Imogen <laughs> sent an email saying uh, you referred rudely to lutes in relation to your theme tune, Jane. And she sent a very nice uh, link to a YouTube video where you can watch Liz's talent and the lovely sounds. Uh, so that's a little something that you might be able to do. Maybe you could do that on Friday night at your drinks thing. Just pause to admire the lute. <laughs> Perhaps I could speed learn the lute between now and Friday. Oh, God, don't. <laughs> Oh, and you'll be sorry, won't you? Um, Denise has uh, emailed us from somewhere that sounds absolutely wonderful. The Highfield Farm Creamery in Wisconsin, USA. Oh, to it be does, there right yeah. now. Love to be in a creamery. I've just had a really nice Welsh cake. You won't know about those, Denise, but they're absolutely lovely. Have you had one there outside? No. It was I, white I was... chocolate and coconut. I thought they were just big biscuits. No, they, well, they are big biscuits. They're a little bit deceptive. Because you take a nibble and a whole world of flavour bursts in your gob. Um, Denise says, um, I was reminded of my father's salads when Jane talked about her own father's old school salads, which uh, was just a lettuce leaf with a giant tomato. My dad, says Denise, absolutely loved jello and would put all sorts of fruit and veg into it. I remember shredded cabbage in lime jello as our salad many times alternating with another of his favourite salads, listen to this, canned peas with a dollop of mayonnaise sprinkled with paprika for a bit of colour. If the jello had canned fruit in it, then it was deemed dessert, and we had it at 7pm before getting ready for bed. But the worst abomination was my mother's favourite, healthy low-calorie salad, which consisted of sugar-free lime jello with canned tuna, mayonnaise and chopped green olives. I haven't had it for 45 years, says Denise, but I can still taste it if I close my eyes. You are a lucky woman, Denise, and please tell us more about your farm creamery. Do they, what do you do in a farm creamery? Well, I should think you make cream, don't you think? Yeah, but, but more than cream, ice cream. Well, there'd be butter, maybe butter. a little bit of Cheese. Do you do cheese? American cheese. I once caused a lot of... I mean, I've, I've had a lifetime of causing offence, but I went on to a very, very rural radio station in Georgia 
1996, I can remember it precisely. Um, and basically they had a phone-in. The phone-in was more or less, you can talk to a foreigner if you call us up now. It really was in the middle of nowhere. And um, people rang up and asked me questions about what it was like to visit Georgia. <laughs> what somebody, A man asked what I didn't like about Georgia. And I said... I didn't like American cheese because it was really... T- and it is. American cheese is oh, just... I thought you were in the Republic of Georgia. No, the American state of oh, Georgia. Oh, OK. Right, so uh, I was just thinking, gosh, wow, wow what she was got the story a, there? Well, I know. And he, anyway, the it's guy got really angry and slammed the phone to then. Oh, my goodness. I know. Uh, so that's... I mean, I really do have a history of causing a, a, offence. Yes, you so. do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I just say on the subject of Dad's cooking... Uh, and I don't want to kind of pander too much to a stereotype, but my lovely dad used to add fruit to nearly everything that he cooked. So he was a huge fan of curries, and there was always... It wasn't just mango that went into the curry. A bit of sultana? Yes, I mean, yes. quite a lot of sultanas, but you'd also find quite often a bit of banana. <laughs> just oh, no. Just a little bit of apple. It was, his, it was his signature thing. And one of my loveliest memories of him, actually, is whenever he cooked, he, he would... Because he kind of knew that not everybody liked it, and this lovely cheeky smile would come over his face, and he'd just reach for something in the fruit bar and go, I'm putting it in. And you'd go, oh, no. Please don't. Please don't. But he made curry. Yes, he made curry. Well, the curry. fact that he made it gets him a giant star from me. But he'd make a beef stew and, you know, put a little mm. bit of banana into it. Just for, He just loved that combination. So I think uh, we have to give credit to dads for spicing yeah. up. Old school dads. Yeah. For trying. <laughs> yeah. For trying in the kitchen. Yes. Yeah. And and also I can kind of picture those put anything in jello salad things i think we've lost the art of cooking with a mold because do you remember we've lost the art of cooking with a mold have we <laughs> we have jane because don't you remember in your childhood we just had so many fantastic wobbly puddings that were always blancmanges and stuff yeah in rabbit molds why would you have a pudding that was in a, the shape of a rabbit was that just our household no um I don't think it was. No, we we had all sorts of, you're right, wobbly and actually really quite revolting puddings. Yeah. Well, Angel Delight was never a, I mean, yep. did so it wobble? Sort of. That's gone from our kids' lexicon, hasn't it? Oh, they've missed out on dishes. So I think they have. Yeah, I all think they've they got have. is pornography. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I think if you just brought back food and moulds, they'd <laughs> soon lose interest in all that nonsense. <laughs> And in general, the new theme music has gone down very well. Very well. So um, keep your thoughts coming uh, and we will endeavour to... Well, we do. We aim to, if not please, at least not really irritate the living daylights out of you. So um, that's the best you can hope for, really. Um, so our guest today was Tony Robinson. Now, he was on, really, to talk about his new podcast, Cunning Cast. Uh, and we do talk about that. And what we don't really talk about in any detail is Blackadder. So I'm just putting it out there. If that's what you were tuning in for, hoping to hear all about what went, really went on behind the scenes, there's none of that here. What you will get, and I need to issue a warning, is some very frank details about prostate examinations. Now, this is because Tony himself has had prostate cancer. And he, one of his editions of the new podcast is dedicated to the subject, isn't it? Yes, and we should just say that he is currently well. Yes, he is. Uh, so he's... I'm so sorry about that phone. Dingle, is he tonight? Dangle, honestly, <laughs> yes. There's obviously a lot going uh, on. But he, I think he does a very good thing, actually, and talks uh, very uh, lucidly and practically 
uh, about what happens when you're examined. Yes. I didn't know some of the things he told us. Jim. Well, and it is frank. So yeah. if you're not in the mood for some frank chat about what happens when you go to the doctor and get your prostate examined, then don't listen towards the end of Tony's conversation. But he's a fascinating bloke uh, with a lot to say, and uh, it's really it's interesting stuff. So um, of the first episode of Cast is about Stonehenge, and that's where we started our conversation. I should say that on this podcast, which is a fantastic addition to the popular history podcast um, genre. Genre, thank you. Thank God for that. Thank God you're there. Uh, he is joined by archaeologist Rashka Dave. Now, she also features in the programmes we talked about with Dan Snow, so she's omnipresent these days. Uh, Mike Parker-Pearson and Alison Sheridan. So here is Tony Robinson starting with his thoughts on Stonehenge. I wanted to do a batch of 12 apart from anything else, to see how they went. Because it's fairly, it's it's audacious and a teeny bit arrogant just to do a whole load of pod- podcasts just about stuff I'm interested in, as varied as this particular list is. Um, but when I got them all together, I just said to the people who I was working with, uh, Zinc Media, uh, you decide which you think will work best as the first. And we're doing two a week. So the first two are Stonehenge and Miriam Margulies. And the one thing I like about this... Are they linked? Well, (laughs) (laughs) they're only only linked in that they're both subjects of my cunning cast. She didn't build Stonehenge, did she? No, no, she would have done had she been there at the time. It is the dirtiest thing you've ever heard recorded. But wonderful in that glorious Miriam way. And because I've known her for so long, I don't know, it's well over half a century. You know, we were in rep together. My first job in rep was with Miriam. I kind of feel like I've got quite a lot on her. Right, well, I'll make a point of listening to that one when it's made available. Um, <laughs> Tom- tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow, OK. In that well, case, today or tomorrow. Right. Um, Stonehenge continues to mesmerise because we still know absolutely all about it, really. I wouldn't say that's true. I think we are gradually learning much more about well, it. Well, who built it then? The people who built it. <laughs> we don't know who they are. Well, i tell you what we do know. Um, God, you're aggressive, aren't you? Yes. At the start, of the, I, thought, I thought they'll lull me into a full sense of security, <laughs> then hit me hard with questions like who built it. Um, what we've learnt so much in the last five or six years is where it was built and, and how it was transformed. We seem to have... We've vaguely known that uh, the smaller stones came from Wales. We now appear to have found the actual mine that they were uh, built, or that they were hacked out of, and uh, and depressions which seem to be the depressions for them. We've also discovered that there are a lot of other Stonehenges around that area. So that was a, it was, as it were, a Stonehenge culture, which for, for whatever reason was... Uh, transformed all the way down to southern England. Although one of the fascinating things, I think, about the podcast is in addition to um, my mate Professor Mike Parker-Pearson, who knows more about Stonehenge than anything else, we also had uh, someone in who was a specialist on finds, and she argued very comprehensively that we can see from the finds that you get around Stonehenge and up in the Orkneys and the Shetlands and on the eastern coast that there was regular communication three, four, five thousand years ago uh, around Britain that, that, that all these great ceremonial buildings were, as it were, inspired by each other. Can we just start with that? I should have asked this earlier on. Yeah. What, what is a henge? It's basically two bits of wood sticking up 
and one bit of wood lying across it, or later on, stone. Uh, right, and this was somehow signified something of the presence of... Well, we see things like it all around the world at around the same time, this, this taste for monumental building, things that will last. What seems to be the case as far as Stonehenge is concerned, edging nervously towards not trying to answer your question about who built it, is that there is another site called Durrington Walls, which is very close to it, which was like a huge Glastonbury with an enormous wooden henge all the way around it. And we've found a ceremonial pathway. I I think I'm right in saying it's the only Neolithic path in the world that has yet been uh, absolutely uh, discovered and it goes all the way down to the river and then it comes back up again near Stonehenge so what they appear to have been doing is feasting at Durrington Walls uh, cremating bodies and then taking them up to Stonehenge hinge, 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 going as it were from the land of the living through to the land of the dead and that. Okay, I can't tell you that it was Dave and Gloria Smith who built it. No. But I think beginning to learn that kind of thing uh, is, is quite magical after so all this time. For people who haven't been able to visit Stonehenge or who visited it very recently, and that's a different thing, isn't it, because you're quite kind of uh, contained as a visitor, mm. can you explain the magic of it? And do you think Stonehenge is there because it was a magical place or it's now a magical place because Stonehenge is there? I think a bit of both, but I also think, and, and a lot of historians write about this, there is a thing in our culture, which is, and most cultures, which is about the importance of place. That people will have gone to somewhere three, four, five thousand years ago, treated it in our terms reverentially, left bodies there, and the memory of that resonates through the ages. So a thousand years later, other people will use the the site and just shove their own people's bodies in. Someone will come up uh, (laughs) uh, 500 years later and it's a mound, so they will build a fort round it, more people will die and it achieves achieves another layer of of meaning and, and reverence. So it does make sense to me that Stonehenge, and not only Stonehenge, but probably about 14 square miles all around it, has been treated to something like we would call worship for thousands and thousands of years. And the fact that we still go there and the old Druids go there and the tourists go there now seems to me not rubbishing it. It just seems to to be, to me, uh, a continuity of, of that respect for a particular place. And built where it is, it is, it does feel magical. And whether it's because we know that it's been treated with respect for thousands of years, or whether it just is, I don't know. I don't think my emotions are sufficiently well-tuned enough to know. But it certainly is. It gives you a buzz. What's the one thing that you would really like to know about Stonehenge? Who made it? And Th- that I could tell you. Yeah, well, it would be good. <laughs> it's not, no, it isn't quite that. It's really where those people came from. What intrigues me so much is, was this a culture that was brought from elsewhere? Chris Stringer, the, uh, one of the profs at the Natural History Museum, said to me the other day, for people to move, all that needs to happen is that every new generation moves their garden one 
one garden further in the same direction. <laughs> yeah. And then, and within a thousand years, you'll find a great movement of people across the continents. <laughs> and, and I would love to know whether that whole idea of, of the, these great buildings came from maybe, you know, the Middle East or the Far East, maybe from India. My goodness, they were further ahead than we were at that time. Uh, uh, or whether actually what it was, was mobile people in England who went overseas. You know, like, like in the 18th century, the, the rich young men went over to Rome and Florence and saw all these buildings and came back and built their stately homes. Mm. You know, maybe it was a, 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 a Neolithic version of that going mm. on. Now, can we have, uh, make a, a seamless link now to a ritual that will most of us will be watching or, or listening to in May, which is the coronation. Because yeah. you've got um, you've got I think an episode about the coronation a little later. Yes, you? I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's in a magnificent building, Westminster Abbey, that we associate with pageantry, yes. and with ceremony. And um, what are you looking forward to? It? Are you? Would you describe yourself as a monarchist? I, I think my I I would have said in my early days that I was I was a republican. Uh, I, I think my. My attitude is is more complex than that. I recognise that throughout my life, this rather extraordinary, demure woman who was our queen actually did an extraordinary job on holding our country together at a time when it could have fractured much more than it did. I also recognise that there is a great deal of love and affection, both for her and the kind of pomp that surrounds her. And it seems to me that it would be rather boorish to uh, to chop Charles's head off, for instance, which might have happened had we been French in the... In, in the 18th century. Nevertheless, I have huge issues about whether or not the monarch should be able to affect and even change our legislation, whether our monarch should be in charge of one sect of one religion, uh, which gets gives it a head start, doesn't it? And, and its representatives should be in the House of Lords and, uh, and, and not elsewhere. And whether it should... Um, whether they should have enormous amounts of money and not pay tax on it. All of those things, I, I worry me intensely. Do you think all of that is about to change? Who knows? You would have said so as far as uh, Charles was concerned some time ago, but an awful lot of radicals, when they get into positions of authority, do tend to swing to the right a little. They do get pressure on them. They, they can't have decide before. which palace they want to lose. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So you don't think that he'll change? No, no, I'm not much. saying that. That's not fair. I'm, I'm just saying I think, you know... He, is, he clearly is a man of integrity. We've all given him so much stick over the decades, haven't we? You're both smiling, which is good on radio, because it doesn't show. Giving nothing but, away. <laughs> but he did seem a bit of a twit. All the stuff that he was saying about what is now a central issue to us, the environment, just seemed like a mad old man talking about talking to trees. And now an awful lot of what he said was profoundly prescient and although I don't necessarily agree with him about modernist architecture nevertheless the fact that he was continually looking at the world around him thinking of I'm ne never going to be able to say this word ecumenicalism is that the ecumenicalism. ecumenicalism yeah in, in a way that a lot of people weren't previously thanks it was lovely the way you both helped me out on that one yeah, well, we're, we're really professional <laughs> we, just, we just keep it quiet yeah. Something else I admire you for, Tony, and I think you and Esther Ranson are notable because you have been really public about ageing and about the problems of older people and the challenges that they face. That's sweet. Well, I mean, but I mean well, it because it's not, it's not actually an issue that's embraced all that enthusiastically by too many people. I think you've just got to say, 
are old people part of us or do they stop being part of us somewhere around 65 and we shunt them elsewhere? If we are going to say they are, if they genuinely are part of us, then the things that are important to them ought to be important to all of us, just as primary school schooling is important to us, just mortgages are important to us, not necessarily because of us, but because of the rest of the people around us. And it really hacks me off that we're not really prepared. It took a long struggle to get uh, uh, testing for women's breasts. And that was a fairly easy organisational thing to do with what's happening now as far as prostate is concerned. The fact that it's so difficult to talk about it, the fact that so few men are actually prepared to have a finger up their bum when most women have things the size of Eurostar up their bits and pieces and don't moan about it. We're, we're not trying to pull any face at the moment. I just, <laughs> want, you to, I just want you to say that. But actually, it's interesting you mention that about men and, and these examinations because yeah. they are, you're right, women have to accept. A smear test, for example, is yeah. no woman's idea of a good time. But they are life-saving yeah. and, and it's so important that you have them. So what do you have to do to change that attitude from not all men but perhaps too many men about exactly that kind of treatment well i'm not going to be able to do it on my own but i have put one uh, episode of uh, my podcast solely uh, about prostate cancer i think the first thing we have to do is, is understand a bit more about it i know loads of people including myself they said oh i've, I've got prostate cancer i say uh, how big is your, your prostate what color is it what's it do Silence, tumbleweed. So even, even somebody with it, yeah, doesn't know. Doesn't know what it is. And when you ask them, about, well, so what are the latest medical developments on prostate cancer? More tumbleweed. You know, it is something that oh, all that people say is we've got to talk about prostate cancer in a rather severe tone and possibly wear a little silver badge. But the real debate about it, which is fascinating, I think, one of those, one of the, the issues which I know will interest you too. You must have come across it in other areas of medicine. In order for something to become incorporated into, as it were, our culture of medicine, it has to jump a huge number of hurdles, whether it's to do with, with pharma, the pharmaceutical industry, the government, the NHS. Uh, so what that means is if I invent a cure for prostate tomorrow, the next day I'm not going to be curing prostate. It'll be 15 years on before it's all integrated into the system so that the testing and the follow-ups and everything that's going to be required will come into place. By that time, the thing that I invented 15 years ago won't be nearly as relevant anymore because someone else somewhere will have found something else. So that this huge lag between the discovery and our ability to use it properly is, I find, incredibly frustrating. So can we solve some of those prostate things immediately here and now? What, what does your prostate do? Uh, it sorts out other stuff, basically. I don't think it even has a primary uh, task of its own. Mm. Um, what we do, what we know about it, it's one of those glands that what we know about it is from when it goes wrong. And what are the first symptoms that it's going wrong? Uh, for most of us, that aching feeling at night that we really want to get get onto the loo, but we're too tired to. And that lasts usually till the first squirt, and then we decide that we will get up and go. That's nice. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, it's all about we, isn't it? Well, we've There's been a great there. thing. We've all been there. Yeah, <laughs> front, I don't know. I don't know whether it, women talk about this too. Uh, front door panic. 
that moment where you're 100 yards off from home, you start to accelerate, you get to the front door. Where the are the keys? The keys drop on the floor. You've got two locks. You've unlocked one. You think you've only locked one when you went out. Oh, no, you've, un- you've unlocked two. You get in. The alarm's on. How do I stop the alarm? You get the alarm off. You've got to get your pants are tucked in with you. Not that I've ever experienced that. How could you possibly think I have? The dog's biting around your ankles. The yes. seat's down and it should be up. And then your willy's sideways and it goes squirting <laughs> off towards the wall. You know. <laughs> yeah, you lost us there. But we were absolutely with you on the first part of that journey. Um, and just to be helpful, uh, if anybody's listening who's never had their prostate examined, what does happen when you go to the doctor to have your prostate examined? Uh, you lie on your side... You, you bunch up, so your bum is kind of open. He talks to you a lot, usually about the weather and that kind of thing. The cricket? And then, yes, yes, oh, oh yes, certainly. It is a very class-bound. And then he'll rub some lubricant into you. Then he pops his finger into you and takes it out again. And then he puts what I suppose is the camera in. It's not like a television camera, you know. It's like a little torch thing. No, it's not ITVX, no, is it? No, no. <laughs> and... And most of the... Sometimes you jump. Sometimes you do jump. But most of the time, you actually... You do get used to it. And then and then you get kind of cool and you think, right, OK, so I'm going to go in, I'm going to be really zen and really relaxed. And here it comes. And it's out again. Now, going back to your question, what's the prostate yes. do? One of the things is it's actually one of your rude bits. You can be stimulated uh, by your prostate. Uh, prostate. Okay, so bearing that in mind, yeah. why are so many men reluctant to have that exam? Because it, they think it's a sort of sexualised, but it's not. Yeah, it's, yes, it's, because they think if they if you touch a rude bit up their bottom, then, then they'll become homosexuals overnight. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pro- probably oversimplifying no, the, I, the, sure the, the mechanism, but, but no, I just I think there is something deeply protective about, about, about a lot of uh, people. Uh, uh, one question that I've been asked a lot is, so why don't I get off on it when the doctor puts his, his finger up my bum? And the answer is because the doctor... You shook then when I said that. The uh, the answer is because the doctor is so aware, you know, is aware that that is some a secret place that needs to be protected, yeah. and so they treat it with 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 hopefully the kind of respect which I hope your gynaecologists uh, treat your bits and pieces with. Yeah. You know, they, so um, how are you now then, Tony? Fine, absolutely fine. You are yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I am in roughly the same position I was when I first ha- had it. I'm monitored every four months. If it goes, if the count, the what's it called, the PCI, yes. PSI, PSI, yes. yes, if that goes up, then I have to be monitored a bit more frequently and I have a scan thing uh, about once every two years. It's fine. The, li- the, the overwhelming likelihood is that because I get it, completely checked i will die with it not of it if something goes wrong nowadays uh, if it's detected early there's keyhole surgery there are drugs so it's a horrible thing if it goes wrong it's a bad cancer that will treat you horribly but if you're sensible about it just go in get you for goodness sake you know you're a man you ought to be able to take a finger up the bum without running away in terror it's just silly just mm. silly. And, but getting through that culture is, in, is enormous. 
Well, we've made strides just in the last couple of minutes, I think. As, <laughs> long, as long as all this can be your broadcast. I think I can hear feet running out of the building. No, no, not at all. Um, and something else you did for a documentary a number of years, I think it was 2012, when you went into a care home and spent time mm. living in a care home. You really, you made the interesting point that a number of the residents were veterans of World War Two, and they were men who, who just had a lot to offer, lots of life experience, but to a degree, probably to a shameful degree, they were they were sort of ignored and and somewhat sidelined. They are. It is very odd about our society, isn't it? I'm not suggesting at all that we all become Chinese communists. I mean, if you want to think about it before you accept that, then do. But but if you look at that stage of all the men who are the senior Chinese people, like two hundred of them, they are all virtually all elderly. And that's not about the communism. I think it's more about China. It's about the fact that elderly people have always been incorporated in, into the body of Chinese culture in a way that elderly people simply aren't in our country. I cannot imagine... Somebody can tell me I'm totally wrong on this. I can't imagine that war veterans, uh, D-Day veterans, Battle of Britain veterans or, or, or the like in China would just be forgotten and, and, and ignored in the same way that ours are. It's, a, it's rubbish. Mm. It's just rubbish. I, I, want to be, I want to be proud of my country. And in, in that sense, I feel quite passionate. You, know, you could even say I was a nationalist as far as that was concerned. I, am, I want to be proud of my nation. I think the way we treat our elderly now will be looked back in will be looked back at with the same kind of shock and horror that we think of child labour, of slavery, of women down the mines. Mm. We'll, we'll think how, uh, you know, our, uh, our people in 100 years' time will think, how ever could they have done it? Did they just not see what was going on? And what do you think will make that change, though? I don't know. Do you I... think it's us being more vociferous in our old age as generations who, I don't know, maybe have, uh, I don't want to say an arrogance because it's not that. What is it, Jane? More well, less capacity. deferential, certainly. Yes. Yeah. And, and more of a capacity for uh, shouting about our unfortunate circumstances. One of the problems that we're dealing with is the fact that we now have drugs to give people this long life, mm. uh, which we haven't had previously. So right, it's like... Like like the, the the gender issue, which kind of bedevils the the, the whole of certain sections of, of society at the moment. One thing people seldom say is this is new. That you you it was so difficult to 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 go through those ghastly operations until very very recently, and very few people did it. It's it, it we are having to deal with our own science, and and our morality and our understanding always lags behind the science. As I, as I say, I think it's true with gender and I think it's true with, with elderly people too. Mm. What's next for you? Oh, God, what am I doing? I'm doing... I think I'm probably doing a, a documentary about Blackadder because it's sort of 40 well, years. through the whole interview. That <laughs> oh, that, oh, that's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You two used to work at the BBC, didn't you? We did. Yeah. 
we did. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but we've got through the whole interview without mentioning that too. So yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I, I've got my own series, which I pitched about two and a half years ago. And with these pitches, they just go away and they just go into the ether and you think everybody's forgotten about them. My idea was I know nothing about engineering, but any time there is a big machine anywhere near, I will go over and watch it until my wife drags me away. And I wanted to do something on big machines that I didn't understand from the POV of someone who doesn't understand them. And uh, and so I've got... I've got a trial, six episodes. What's the title that of that one? Oh, uh, Tony Robinson's Marvellous Machines, I, would, I it guess. Sounds, it sounds good. Yeah. Um, well, Tony, lovely to meet you. Um, yeah, thank you, you for coming in. After thank all these you. years, the first time we've, yeah. we've met. Well, let's not make it the last. Oh, please. <laughs> Tony Robinson, you might know him as Baldrick from Blackadder, a subject we didn't really talk about in any detail. His new podcast is really interesting. You will love it. It's called Cunning Cast, and it launches tomorrow. Uh, and he's also going to be making those shows for TV, which sounded interesting. Tony's Marvellous Machines. Now, I did think when he was telling us about Tony's Marvellous Machines, um, because the ease with which he said, yes, yeah, so, well, I just had this idea. And I went along to the commissioning people and I said, you know, I see a big machine. I'm fascinated by it. And he's got a series out of it. So if you could wander up to a commissioning editor, uh, something that just fascinates you. And, you know, the title is going to be Jane's something somethings what would that be oh um the thing that has always fascinated me is just the double standard so the way that women and men are judged very differently and i think um there must you dress up as a man and get a man to dress up as a woman and see how that works yeah i don't think i'd really get that far dressing up as a well you never know do you but actually I, to go back to the earlier topic of mr b johnson he is a man who has behaved in a way in his public life that only a man ever could and there's not a cat in hell's chance that a female politician in this country, or I suspect anywhere in Western Europe, could have conducted themselves in the way. Well, that... you'd be uh, you'd be off on maternity leave for most of your career. There's that as well. Okay, <laughs> right. An astute remark. Uh, do join us tomorrow for more off air. Our guest, are both on off air and on the live radio show tomorrow, is Susie Ezzy. Is Susie Eddie Izzard? So, uh, to put it mildly. Quite a lot to talk about there. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, no, so am I. Yeah. Uh, so have yourselves a lovely evening. Uh, Jane and Fee at times.radio if you'd like to get in touch with this podcast. Uh, you can take the podcast in any direction you like. Uh, so don't wait for us to start a topic. We're always interested in what's going on in your life at the moment. And actually, maybe we could turn that into a tiny theme. If you could just walk into a commissioning editor's office and something that you find fascinating that's not on your television at the moment, because there are so many copycat programmes. Well, I'm sick to death of crime shows, which basically are just about women being murdered, um, solved by... Or there's always one rugged copper. Then there's one who plays by the book and is slightly more intellectual. Uh, they're all by the seaside. There's got to be more to life than this. I'm sure there is. In the world of fact, though, I think at the moment I am bemused by the number of programmes which are pitting people against each other. So, you know, the traitor thing, oh, yeah. rise and fall, put everybody in an experiment, let's see lots of people bitching about each other behind each other's can't backs. Yeah, that kind of thing. No, I can't stand that kind of thing. I mean, we come to work, Jane, so we've got that box ticked, haven't we? <laughs> but that kind of stuff, you just sometimes I just... At the moment, when I'm flicking through the channels, you know, not to quote from Bruce Springsteen, but there's just something missing. There, for, for me, 54-year-old 
yeah. woman. Intellectual. With quite, no, I was going to no. say with quite average taste. Yeah, I'm a middle-of-the-road TV viewer. I totally get what you're saying. And I think what was aimed at us last night from memory was, was it Anton Dubeck and the other chap going on yet another tour of Italy? Of Italy, yeah. I mean, uh, not that they've ever done a tour of Italy before, but there have been so many travel shows set in bloody Italy. And they're all with men, aren't they? They really are, right, because Stanley Tucci yeah, did the it. Italian thing. There's um, the, the Gino de Campo. He's, he's always zooming he's always around in Italy. Italy. So, um, where, so that's what I'd love to hear from our listeners about. What do you want to switch on your television, 8 o'clock on a weekday night, and see somebody doing something that is intriguing to you? I don't want Greg Wallace in a hairnet. <laughs> Oh, going but, into but, a factory. Actually, last night, or was it the night before, I did find myself, I was lolling on the sofa as Greg explored the wonderful world of the double-decker bus. <laughs> and it wasn't that it was uninteresting. The other contributors were actually very interesting. There's that historian, is it Ruth Goodman, who I yes. really like. Um, and she was looking at the history of buses. But Greg was just boinging around like this giant toddler in a, in a factory, just exclaiming in this faux, goofy way, which just drives me to drink. Yeah. And also, I don't want any more uh, property shows. I think we've just done that. We've just done that. So, love to hear your thoughts. Uh, send us an email and uh, we'll see where we go with it. You did it. Elite listener status for you for getting through another half hour or so of our whimsical ramblings, otherwise known as the hugely successful podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. We miss the modesty class. <laughs> our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler, the podcast executive producer. It's a man, it's Henry Tribe. Yeah, he's an executive. Now, if you want even more, and let's face it, who wouldn't, then stick Times Radio on at three o'clock Monday until Thursday every week, and you can hear our take on the big news stories of the day, as well as a genuine interesting mix of brilliant and entertaining guests on all sorts of subjects. Thank you for bearing with us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Mm-hmm.